Thanks for listening to the Archbridge Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Wilterdink, and today I'm joined by our president and CEO, Gonzalo Schwartz, to talk with Dr. Scott Winship. Scott is a resident scholar and the director of poverty studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he researches social mobility and the causes and effects of poverty. Before joining AEI, Scott served as the executive director of the Joint Economic Committee, where he created the Social Capital Project, a multi-year research project to investigate the evolving nature of social relationships, including families, communities, workplaces, and religious congregations. Scott has also been a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research for Equal Opportunity, where he remains an honorary member of the Board of Advisors, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Public Policy Research, a fellow in the economics department of the Brookings Institution, the research manager for the Economic Mobility Project at the Pew Charitable Trusts. And I should also mention Scott has several papers that he's written for the Archbridge Institute on economic mobility as well. So, Scott, thank you for joining us. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thanks. Just to kind of get us started here, you are the director of poverty studies. So if you would, I'd love for you to just give us kind of a big picture view on poverty. I know you've worked on it for a while and, 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 mob and social mobility as well. So is there maybe like three or four sort of top trends that jump out to you as things we should know about poverty and social mobility in general? Sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think the way that I tend to think about poverty and mobility is, um, a, a very positive story on the one hand and, uh, a not so great story on the other. So I think on poverty trends, um, we've actually made a lot more progress reducing poverty than is generally recognized. Um, even according to the official poverty statistics, which have all sorts of problems that depending on how deeply into the weeds we want to go, uh, we, can, we can talk about those. But the official statistics uh, indicated that before uh, the pandemic, um, child poverty was at an all-time low. Um, poverty was at an all-time low. Um, there have been numbers that have come out since from uh, the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University that suggest that even um, as of January or February of this year, poverty was at an all-time low. Um, and those numbers actually understate the progress that we've made um, for a variety of reasons. But, uh, but, but the best uh, poverty numbers suggest that since the early 1980s, um, poverty among kids has been on the decline uh, poverty among the kids of single mothers is at an all-time low. Um, poverty among African-American children is at an all-time low. So it's, it's a pretty unambiguously good story there. Um, the problem is that when you turn to uh, social mobility, uh, the rate at which poor kids uh, escape poverty as adults uh, hasn't improved at all over you know, 50 years. Um, and, you know, what does that mean? Well, it, it, it could very well be that, you know, one of the reasons that poverty has declined is because we've expanded the safety net. That's not the only reason, but it's, it, it is one reason. Um, but it's possible that the safety net, at the same time that it reduces point-in-time poverty, um, it actually has these perverse incentives that cause uh, people to make choices that, are, that inhibit uh, upward mobility. And so while we can reduce point in time poverty, we're not getting anywhere reducing uh, multi-generational poverty, for instance. So that's that's kind of the, and you can sort of go much deeper on, on either poverty or or mobility, depending on where we want to take the conversation. Yeah. The, the thing that jumps out to me, I had heard uh, something about if you measure based on consumption, right? Like the consumption measure of poverty. Can you talk a little bit about that research that's come out and whether you think 
that that is a better way to approach it than the more traditional method of measuring poverty? Yeah. So, uh, so a lot of um, the decisions around measuring poverty come down to pretty technical uh, methodological choices that researchers make. Um, and in the past, for a long time, uh, the income numbers had enough flaws uh, that some researchers, most prominent of whom would be Bruce Meyer uh, and James Sullivan, um, have instead turned to consumption data. So consumption is basically what you spend rather than what you receive as income. Um, so in theory, they ought to be similar. Um, people get income, they can either spend it or they can save it. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily give you the same information, but if they, if they give you very different uh, information, you would, you'd be concerned about that. Um, the consumption data comes from a government survey called the Consumer uh, Expenditure Survey. Um, and it has tended to show in the past even bigger declines uh, in poverty than, than a lot of the income-based uh, analyses have done. I think we have a better appreciation now that if you uh, if you look at income uh, the best way possible, which means taking into account taxes and tax credits, because because taxes have declined over time and the generosity of tax credits has increased over time. If you include things like non-cash benefits, food stamps, housing subsidies, school lunches and breakfasts, um, those sorts of things. If you include health insurance uh, that you might get from the government or from employers, uh, you tend to, to basically get the same results, whether you use income measures or consumption measures. I have a, a chart in a paper that I wrote in 2016 that actually shows uh, the Meyer-Sullivan consumption trend against um, the income-based trend that, that, that I measure, and, and they basically lie on top of each other. So um, but, but both look much better than if you just use the official poverty rate. Um, and, and so I, I think researchers are pretty clear at this point that we use the official poverty rate for a variety of, of public programs. It's written into statute that that's how people qualify for certain things. But if you really want to know how, how people are doing and how that's changed over time, it's not uh, the best thing to look at. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, you know, we're kind of learning a bit more about how to get a better and more accurate picture. So I'm glad to see that that's becoming a bit more widely adopted. Um, well, kind of turning to the mobility stuff then, uh, I know for the Archbridge Institute, you put out a couple different uh, installments of this primer. Uh, in the first installment, you looked at sort of the snapshot of economic mobility in the United States using the panel study and income dynamics uh, research. You're... If I recall right, the things that jumped out to me most on that were that it was still something around the on the lines of like three and four kids were doing better off in terms of income than their parents at the same age. Uh, and that was actually in terms of absolute mobility, even for the bottom quintile, the, the poorest were still actually doing better. Do I have that right or am I missing something sort of in there? Yeah, that's right. So um, maybe just as some background uh for the, for the listeners, um, when, you, when we talk about mobility, we can talk about absolute mobility or relative mobility. Um, absolute mobility is, uh, are you better off than your parents were uh, after you take into account the fact that the cost of living has gone up? Um, so you can, you can start out poor, uh, say, in the bottom fifth, and you can end in the bottom fifth. Um, 
but you might still be better off than your parents if everybody sort of gets richer over time. Um, that would still be absolute mobility. Relative mobility is uh, if you start in the bottom fifth, are you able to escape the bottom fifth? Um, so, uh, so you can have absolute mobility, but not very much relative mobility. And so in the paper, I tried to, uh, to, to develop the best estimates I could for both of those. Um, you're talking about the absolute mobility estimates. That's, that's exactly right. I wanted to try to look at the research by Raj Chetty um, at Harvard, who had uh, gotten a lot of attention from some results suggesting that only about 50% of uh, adults end up better off um, than their parents uh, at the same age. Um, and that was lower than, than some previous studies. You know, I worked at, at Pew, as you mentioned, a ways back, and we had we had put out some estimates that were higher than that. And so I, I, I used this other data set to, to try to uh, look at it that way and, and to uh, improve on some of uh, the choices that they made using a measure of inflation that, um, that, ac that more accurately reflects changes in the, the cost of living, um, taking into account changes in family size and things like that. And at the end of the day, I, I concluded that yeah, it's more like 75% of Americans who uh, who end up better off than their parents. Um, and as you said, I think in, in my paper, I don't think I actually reported this. I could be wrong. I think I, I ran into uh, sample size issues, but, it, but it's previously been found that you're much more likely to end up better off than your parents if you grew up poor. And that makes sense. You know, if you're, if you're the, uh, the child of, of millionaires, um, the chances that you're going to also be a millionaire or make even more are lower than if you grow up in poverty. And then to be richer than your parents, that only means you have to make, you know, $15,000 or something like that. Um, but yeah, upwards of, you know, 90% of poor kids end up better off um, than their parents at the same age. That was, that was really good news, you know, when I read that. And it was, it was kind of a stark contrast from... I remember the headlines that came out with that pretty seminal uh, Raj Chetty study that was, you know, the American dream is dead, or at least it's on life support or something like that. And you've you've pushed back on that a little bit. Um, now I know, Gonzalo, you've written a lot on the American dream, so feel free to, like, jump in here um, when, when we're kind of thinking about some of the differences between some of these papers. You know, I don't think, uh, to my knowledge, you weren't calling out any sort of issue with the way that they had put together their study. It was just more of sort of what they're measuring and sort of how you how you're taking away from that. So I think I guess this question just boils down to in general, do you think the American dream is dead? Do you think it's on life support? Do you think uh, how how worried about it should we be in general? Yeah, I think there's a lot of overblown pessimism um, about the American dream. I think, um, you know, Raj Chetty is a fantastic researcher for sure. Uh but I do think his analyses overstate the extent to which absolute mobility uh, has fallen, um, which it probably has fallen over time. Um, and, and also it, it just uh, puts too much emphasis on the importance of absolute mobility, frankly. So what do I mean by that? Well, so first of all, we've already said that poor kids have more absolute mobility than rich kids. Um, that doesn't mean that any of us would, would prefer growing up poor so that we can then have you know better odds of absolute mobility, right? Nobody would choose would right. choose that. Um, similarly, you know, Chinese kids today probably are going to have much stronger absolute upward mobility than American kids, um, because China is a much poorer country than the United States. 
uh, again, like, which would you choose? Um, you, you don't, you don't sort of prioritize absolute mobility above everything else. And then the last thing I would say, you know, this, this decline in absolute mobility for kids who were, were born in 1940, uh, the Chetty research shows that over 90% of them ended up better off than their parents. So, you know, would you prefer to have been born during uh, the Great Depression? Um, but knowing that you had a, you were almost definitely going to be better off than your parents, or would you be prefer to be born, uh, you know, in, in the 21st century when your odds of being better off than your parents are, are lower. Um, so it, it really is, uh, it's not fair to sort of equate the American dream with ending up better off than your parents are. Um, uh, living standards, you know, have, have improved greatly over the years. Um, and, and that's got to count for a whole lot too. Um, and then, you know, and then there's this issue of relative mobility where, uh, where the, the trend story is not as positive, um, as I mentioned before. Um, and if I had to pick something to worry about, it would not be, uh, declining absolute mobility it would be the fact that we haven't made any progress on relative mobility. Yes. And I, I think in, uh, in, in that sense, Scott, just building on that. And I think you were saying about living standards is that usually the American dream is discussed like the, the most typical definition is a land where people seek seek to leave, uh, live better, richer, and fuller lives. So the component of like, if we're better than our parents, it's always maybe just the richer part, but are we living better lives? As you said, living standards are better or fuller lives. If people have more opportunities to pursue different careers that are not depending exclusively on, on income, but it's more fulfilling in that sense. And I think, I mean, I don't have any data on any trends of people uh, searching for more fulfillment in lower paying jobs than their parents, but just in general, I think that it's, it's a more uh, holistic uh, idea. And I think, I don't know if you agree that sort of the, the discussion, the more maybe academic or policy discussion of treating it uh, like that as just a number if we out earn our parents is not given uh, um, to that, that big picture. And in terms of surveys of the American dream that you have done uh, at, a, at AI or even we have done, people associate American dream more with just the freedom of doing what, what you want or family life or other, or other aspects. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We, we did a survey, uh, I think it was similar to one that you guys did, uh, way back when I was at Pew, uh, where we asked people, how do you define the American dream? And, uh, you know, all, all of us in the Wonka sphere or whatever, you know, talk about economic mobility or whatever, but you're absolutely right. Far and away, the most popular choice, uh, is something like the freedom to do and say what I want. Um, so it's really kind of a, the, the American dream is sort of libertarian uh, in a lot of ways, which makes sense. You know, if you think of the history of, of the country and kind of the, the nature of, uh, of sort of American politics. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and whether that has changed over time is totally different from uh, the question of whether absolute mobility has increased over time. The other area where I think, um, you know, there is, I, I think, this, this pretty widespread sense among a lot of people that uh, that, that something has gone wrong. Um, there's there's this malaise, um, this yeah, this this the sense that, um, that that things are in trouble, and and there, I think, what's happening is that a lot of our social life, um, and we can talk about social capital later on, perhaps, um, but a, a lot of aspects of our social life really have. Uh, deteriorated um, over time. Um, everything from, you know, the stability of families to the amount of time we spend with our neighbors and our coworkers off the job to the number of groups we belong to, 
the congregations uh, that we attend, um, faith and institutions, things like that. Uh, and so, you know, by, by that measure, perhaps, um, you know, if, if that's part of the American dream, uh, maybe things are, uh, are sort of fraying. Um, but I think the problem is people misattribute the sense that something has gone wrong to economics and they, and they think, oh, you know, the economy has, has, has failed us and created these problems. Whereas reality is, is, is just, we've all made choices as Americans, um, to pursue more stuff and to buy more things and, um, and to be more individualistic and, and we've lost things on the way as a, as a consequence of that. And, uh, and we're not necessarily willing to kind of face up to those trade-offs. Um, but that's getting off topic a little bit, I guess. That's definitely very interesting. One thing I wanted to sort of, uh, talk about before we move on to social capital or some of these other trends is that it's also, I think in the public narrative, there's a perception that ties, well, sort of a narrative that ties income inequality a lot to social mobility and they're intertwined as if, if it were the same terms. And there's a lot of disagreements and you've written about it as well, about if inequality is rising as much as the public discourse wants us to, to believe or to see, and there's issues with measurement and all that. But just in the sense of how those terms are still very intertwined and entangled when there shouldn't be, and the policies to, I think, fix either of those issues are, are, are different. And where our policy conversations sort of think that, uh, uh, sort of point to that we need to fix inequality in order to solve income mobility. So I don't know if you can talk just a little bit about that sort of that income inequality narrative that sort of pushes into that, if it should be intertwined or not, and, or anything around that. Sure. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There are two different things. Um, you can imagine uh, a world in which there was a lot of inequality um, between, say, lawyers and security guards, um, but where the sons of lawyers and the sons of security guards, you know, had equal opportunity to become a lawyer or a security guard or whatever else. Um, if we lived in that world, probably uh, inequality would bother a lot, uh, would bother people a lot less. Um, you can also imagine a world where we leveled incomes so that there was no uh, income inequality. Um, but, you know, if you were born to the uh, poorest educated parents, um, you would end up, you know, among the poorest educated yourself. Um, and maybe like there would be no income inequality, but, uh, but, but sort of inequality of opportunity in a sense, you know, would still be, would still be quite large in, in the sense that you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to become a lawyer if you wanted to, if you were the, uh, the son or daughter of a security card. Um, so they really are two different things. Um, and, you know, theoretically, they could be linked, um, but it's an empirical question, of course. And and so I've spent a lot of time pushing back against the idea that when you have more income inequality, you get less uh, intergenerational mobility. Um, you know, I think I think most famously, uh, the Obama administration uh, had a chart that was uh, that became called the Great Gatsby Curve. Um, and essentially, it just showed that countries that had more inequality uh, had less mobility. Um, and it was just a scatter plot, you know, it was kind of pointing, pointing, plotting countries on a, on a, you know, X and Y axis, um, which, of course, you know, A, it's just a correlation. It's not causation at all. 
um, be the measure of mobility that they used. Um, it was something called the intergenerational elasticity, uh, which actually looks worse, looks like uh, you have uh, less mobility um, when inequality is growing. Um, so it's almost the relationship between the two is almost baked in. Um, and, uh, and, and so in my second paper for Archbridge, um, which was comparing mobility rates across countries, I showed that, um, that sometimes the U.S. Uh, looks much more similar to other countries if you use uh, a, a relative mobility measure um, rather than the one that was used in, uh, in the Great Gatsby curve. Uh, for instance, if you're comparing male earnings, uh, sons and fathers' earnings or daughters' earnings to their fathers' earnings, um, the U.S. doesn't look much worse than other countries at all in terms of mobility. Um, uh, if, if, you're, if you're comparing family incomes, the story is a little different. The U.S. does, does look like uh, it has less mobility than other countries. Um, but, but these kind of decisions really matter. Um, and so uh, getting back to the, 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 the point of inequality um, and, and mobility being, being related, um, you know, when, I, when, I've, when I've dived into the evidence, uh, there just hasn't been very strong uh, data one way or another that, that makes the case that, um, that, you, that you get less mobility when you have uh, more inequality. In particular, the trends don't match up, right? If, if mobility hasn't uh, increased over time, it certainly hasn't fallen much over time either, um, even though, you know, in theory, income inequality has, has skyrocketed which we can come back to that. It's not actually even totally clear that that's the case, but, um, but if inequality has risen and mobility you know, has been flat, that's not consistent with the idea that, uh, that, that it should have worsened mobility over time. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, I'd point people to Gonzalo's paper, looking at some of the structural factors that might be affecting both mobility and inequality. I mean, like you said, we don't really know exactly, but I could easily think of a case like, I mean, it's extreme, but like, let's say Venezuela, right? I bet you, you'd find a lot of inequality there and you probably would find a lot lower mobility, but I don't know that there's like a direct connection. You know, there's, there's obviously uh, other things, other policies that are probably uh, affecting both of those things at the same time. Uh, and so, you know, again, ex an extreme example, um, you know, but that it doesn't seem out of the question to me that there might be policy decisions that are playing with both of those, um, both of those variables. I, I do want to kind of move on to the, uh, Oh, sorry. You want to finish up on any thought there? Oh, no, I, I was just going to, yeah, agree with you that, you know, one, one of the problems with linking the two is that it really matters like what, why a country is a high inequality country. If it's a high inequality country, because, you know, it's authoritarian and there are elites who are, uh, skimming off of everybody else. Um, you can imagine that would affect people's incentives, uh, and you might very well get uh, get less mobility and less economic growth um, if it's a country that has a lot of inequality because uh, it it allows um, you know for uh, outsized returns to uh, to people who innovate um, uh, and take risks. Then you know that could actually be a way of motivating people to try to aspire to bigger and better things. So yeah, it's it's really to just kind of link the two um, is really a very simplistic uh, statement to make. I am intrigued by this idea that people are sort of conflating sort of uh, some of our social bonds and sort of you know this sense that there's something kind of going wrong. I mean, at least from my perspective, 
you know, you've seen that from the left. You, know, you kind of have like a Bernie Sanders approach, who's you know, it's the millionaires and the billionaires who are, you know, causing all of these terrible things. Um, and I, you know, for a while, I think the right was less prone to that, but. In my opinion, since, I don't know, 20, let's say 2015, 2016, there's really been a sharp turn on that. Uh, I mean, I'd be, I'd be curious to see here if you guys have a different opinion, but at least from my perspective, it looks like, okay, now the right has sort of joined this like bandwagon of like, oh, there are, there's, there's some elite out there uh, of some kind that's sort of pulling these strings uh, in a way that's like making your life tangibly worse. Uh, and so, you know, they have different villains. We have, you know, the, the right has a little more different boogeymen here than the left, although not always. Um, and, uh, I just, I don't know. It's, it seems to me that there are relatively few voices out there who are now kind of willing to push back on that a little bit. So is that, is that something that you guys have observed as well? Do you think, uh, I'm sort of off base there or, or how, how do you look at that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, um, yeah, for a long time, it sort of seemed like, you know, the left didn't like economic elites and the right, obviously painting with very broad brush, the right didn't like cultural elites. And I think that's basically true still, but but increasingly you do kind of have this group of national conservatives, um, you know, where maybe American Compass is, is sort of the best example of that, that increasingly are, are railing against economic elites as well. Um, I recently wrote something for the Dispatch um, that was criticizing a, an American Compass report about inequality. I think it's really interesting the way that American Compass has evolved on this. Um, Orrin Cass and I debated a few years ago about, you know, how, how uh, workers were doing and how men were doing. And eventually we kind of got to a point where I, I think I had persuaded him on a lot of the numbers that I was citing where that, you know, showed that even, you know, male earnings like aren't lower than they were before. They haven't increased by a ton. Um, and, and his response was, well, you know, but they should have increased more. And it was really an argument about inequality. And at the time I sort of said like, look, if the issue is inequality, like you should just say that it's, it's inequality. Um, and, and now, you know, last month or the month before there was, they put out a report, uh, that was, very explicitly, you know, saying inequality levels were too high and the increase was too high and that that had all these consequences. Um, and it felt like I was, you know, back in 2014, uh, fighting with Thomas Piketty, um, about inequality. So, uh, it, things, things really have, um, uh, pretty much all the arguments that I, that I was dealing with, uh, versus you know, the left at the time, like I'm now, uh, seeing come up. Uh, on the right as well. Yeah, I wonder if you can maybe shed a little light too on. I I know a lot of people are very concerned about inequality, uh, and I maybe you could tell from the conversation so far. I I'm less concerned about. It. I think the reason why you have inequality matters a lot. You know, like authoritarianism versus like oh, you just have a really dynamic dynamic economy that rewards innovators, and you're not going to punish that. And so I think. I'm I'm less concerned about inequality as, you know, in and of itself. And and I think, you know, for the people who are very concerned about that, you know, couldn't couldn't they just say like, okay, well we'll just have a hundred percent estate tax then. Um and you know, you can you know, maybe that wouldn't solve all of inequality, but you you'd probably, you know, take a real big whack at it, you know. So 
if if inequality is the problem, why don't we see more proposals like that? Or maybe maybe we do, and you you're more attuned to that um, and than I am. Well, some of the policies that are being proposed, you know, are are quite radical, even if they don't necessarily sound like it. Um, you know, the idea of a wealth tax, for instance, um, levied year after year would would pretty quickly. Uh, you know, wipe inequality, not completely out, but, um, but, but, you know, it would, it would, it would have a pretty dramatic effect. Um, you can think of uh, a, a wealth tax, um, you know, a fairly small percentage wealth tax as being equivalent to, you know, a tax of over a hundred percent on capital income. Um, it's sort of the same way of thinking about it. Um, and, and, Essentially, that would happen year after year with a with a wealth tax, um, and that would have pretty dramatic effects on on the economy and on innovation, um, probably on inequality as well. But uh, but I, I think uh, you you would get um, uh, the sort of circumstances that uh, that the right worries about um, when they hear people talking about uh, reducing inequality. You would you know the, when you reduce inequality, there are going to be some consequences too. Um, and among those, you know, reduced economic growth uh, might be an important one. Um, over the last 40 years, uh, the, the only time that income concentration has gone down on a consistent basis has been during recessions. Um, recessions, you know, are not, are not good for the middle class or for the poor. Um, the periods where inequality goes up tend to be the periods where middle class incomes are rising and, and when poverty is, is falling. Uh, so I, I think um, some of the wealth tax proposals, um, you know, are not 100 percent estate tax uh, proposals, but they would they would have pretty profound impacts. And fortunately, they don't seem to be going anywhere at this point, but they certainly have some prominent backers. OK, that makes sense. I'm, I'm glad you're able to kind of clarify that a little bit. I guess it it really comes down to sort of like what what people perceive as the actual root of the problem, um, you know, and sort of how. You want to address that, you know, getting back to some of the mobility stuff, you know, we could have, I remember you were giving a talk one time and somebody asked, you know, what was, what's, should we, should we aim for perfect relative mobility, right? So have like all of the income quintiles, you know, completely shuffle like 20% at each one, you know, it's basically, you know, a roll of a five-sided die every time you're going to do something. And um, I remember you were saying, you know, it's, it's a little more complicated that because, you know, do you really want to live in the world where, you know, no matter what you do for your kids, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, there's no, uh, so can, can you, I guess, can you talk about that a little bit of like some of the struggle with even, uh, where should we set our sights in terms of a policy goal when it comes to mobility or is it really more just an observational tool? Yeah, it's a really tough question. I mean, I, I tend to feel like, um, you know, it's not quite as clear cut as with poverty where, you know, I think our goal ought to always be less, less poverty than what we've got. Um, of course, like how you get there matters a lot. Um, upward mobility is a little bit more complicated where, where I don't think you can say, well, we just, whatever we have, we, I think we should have more upward mobility. Um, but I do think we should have more upward mobility than, than what we currently have. Um, I used to tell people, you know, well, we, we should be at least as good as Canada. Um, and, 
and in the years after I started saying that to people, uh, some research has come out that I go over in uh, in in part two of the of the primer that I wrote for you all. Um, you know, it, it looks like again, if you're looking at men's earnings, um, it looks like we are actually as good as Canada um, in terms of of relative mobility. We are as good as Sweden, even um, in terms of relative mobility. Uh, we may even be as good as uh, as Denmark, um, according to Jim Jim Heckman's research. Um, uh, so, uh, so when, when some, when you find out something like that, uh, and you've gone on the record saying, well, we should be at least as good as Canada, uh, and, and, and now like, maybe it turns out we are as good as Canada. Um, that's kind of sobering. Um, but, I, but I do think even if we are as good as Canada, uh, maybe I'm moving, moving the goalposts at this point, we, you know, we ought to be shooting for, uh, for more, um, perfect statistical mobility would mean, you know, if you're born in the bottom, uh, you have a 20% chance of staying there and you have a 20% chance of making it to the top fifth. Currently, you know, those numbers are more like 40 to 45% chance of being stuck in the bottom and more like five to 10, uh, making it, making it to the, to the top fifth. Um, I think we can do better than that. Uh, you know, I don't know what the right number is. And, and again, it, a lot would depend on how you did it. Um, if you just redistributed money, uh, at the end, um, you could you could achieve uh, you know perfect statistical mobility, but I don't think anybody would be would be happy with that uh, with that result. Ultimately, what you want is is more poor kids to have the opportunity to become uh, whatever it is that they want. Um, the 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 point about so a world with with perfect statistical mobility, um, I think Raihan Salam is the person that I that I heard say this. Uh, you know, this, this point that like, well, that's a world in which no matter what you do to help your kids, it's all for nothing, right? Because um, ultimately, like, it's just going to be a coin flip where you end up. That's not an appealing world put that way. The, the way that I would sort of put it is, you know, imagine if we had a, a, a world of true uh, equal opportunity um, where everybody was pushing their kids to, uh, to, 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 succeed in whatever, whatever the kids' goals were. Um, that would be a world in which a lot more people were working hard. A lot more people were, were, were having, uh, you know, stronger educational attainment, um, innovating more, taking more risks. Um, and in such a world, you might end up where it was a coin flip at the end, but we'd all be better off for it because essentially it would, it would, it would create more competition, uh, in a sense. You can imagine that there are some people that are born in the top fifth who are not that incentivized um, necessarily to uh, to do better than their own parents. Um, a world where they had a bigger risk of of ending up not at the top um, wouldn't necessarily be a worse world, in my view. Um, you know, that, that would be a, a world where we'd have stronger productivity growth, stronger economic growth. Um, so, so there, there's it's, it's a really complicated question and. And I, I think anybody that tells you they sort of know what the right level of, of mobility is, you know, probably hasn't really thought about what they're saying. So despite our matching Canada and some of the Nordic countries, maybe Gonzalo and I will hold off getting a big mission accomplished banner for you. <laughs> um, but uh, soon, soon. Um, well, we we touched on it a little bit earlier, but I kind of want to go back to the social capital discussion. So I, I'm going to kind of lob a real big one at you here, Scott. Um, but so maybe 
maybe you can start by defining it sort of so if people don't really know what it means, at least not in a technical sense, you know, we might have a sense of what it means. Um, and uh, one one book that's really jumped out to me in the past maybe couple of years has been Tim Carney's Alienated America, where he kind of goes into some of these um, questions about, you know, we have the sense that something's wrong uh, and he kind of tracks it by counties and he looks at the social capital in those counties and he sort of relates it to some of the, you know, the Trump voter stuff, you know, looking particularly at counties that, uh, you know, either voted for Trump in the primary or, or versus counties that ended up voting for Trump in the general, but didn't vote for him in the primary and were a little more resistant. And he talks about how maybe social capital is kind of a dividing line between some of those. Um, so I'm going to kind of hand it over to you to, to just talk a little bit about social capital, what it is. Uh, maybe if you want to run through some of the findings for the social capital project, and uh, if you can keep it all in your mind, um, I'd love to hear what you have uh, to say about uh, Tim Carney's book and, and what, what you think he gets right, or maybe what you think he gets wrong. Sure. Yeah. Um, let's see. So first of all, yeah, social capital is one of those terms that um, everybody sort of thinks they know what it means, but it, but it turns out people are often using it to mean slightly different things. Um, <clears throat> that's true even among among researchers, by the way. The way that uh, that we talked about it in the social capital project um, when I worked for Senator Lee was, you know, just think of the the, the two words that are in social capital, like capital is something that is valuable to people because it is productive. It, it helps them achieve their ends. Um, so financial capital, um, you know, savings lets you do things uh, because you've got money. Physical capital, um, you know, produces widgets or, uh, you know, whatever it is that a business is producing, um, uh, which, which makes them, gives them a flow of money. Human capital, you know, we all have, those are the skills uh, that are valuable to employers um, that, that generate uh, income for us, and so social capital is is capital. It's it's productive. It helps us achieve our goals, um, whatever those goals are. We, we can we can think of goals that uh, you know that, that everybody uh, approves of, and we can think of goals you know that are that we would think are abhorrent or whatever. But uh, to, to each individual, um, capital is is something that helps them achieve their goals. And uh, and social, you know, just means uh, it's it's capital that is imbued in relationships. So social capital is really just you know the valuable part of our of our relationships um, with other people, um, just by virtue of knowing people, um, of being connected to institutions um, that that people have gotten together to form in order to achieve ends. Um, those are all forms of uh, those relationships are forms of social capital. So in the social capital project, we, uh, I like to think of it as in, in, in two phases and phase two is ongoing, by the way, I should, uh, this is, this is uh, an ongoing project that I'm no longer uh, affiliated with. Um, phase one was mostly just descriptive stuff. Um, so we wanted to show what had happened, um, to indicators of social capital over time. Um, turns out the answer there is that they, they pretty much all deteriorated, um, uh, and then we also wanted to look at how social capital varied across different parts of the country. Um, and the story there is basically that uh, southern states and counties uh, from California all the way to South Carolina uh, tend to look the worst um, on, on most indicators of social capital. 
and places like um, the Mountain West um, and uh, the Dakotas and uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin and northern New England uh, tended to rank the highest on social capital. And that was true for a variety of different measures related to families, related to communities, um, related to philanthropic giving, related to violent crime. Uh, they, they all tended to kind of cluster together with each other um, across these states that way. And then phase two of the project was intended more to, uh, to try to propose some policies that could shore up social capital um, or that could expand opportunity by, by targeting social capital as a way of expanding opportunity. Um, and so phase two is, has proposed you know, everything from Oh, school reforms to promote, um, you know, local schools that are more in line with with community values and preferences to, uh, you know, affordability things like um, making it easier for younger families to afford to buy a home so they can start families. Um, uh, we had a report that came out a few months ago. They had a report a few months ago on police reforms um, as a way of restoring trust in law enforcement institutions. Um, and, and so that's really been the goal of the project to try to uh, articulate um, you know, what the issues are around social capital and to think about what can policy do uh, to improve social capital. Um, and then I guess the last uh, part of your question was about Tim Carney's book, Alienated America, which, which I thought was great. Um, it was probably my favorite book that came out that year that probably was two years ago at this point, maybe three, um, but would really recommend it to, uh, to all your listeners. Yeah. I'll put a link in the, in the description for this too, so people can find it. Yeah. Tim is just really a great writer and he's good at explaining, you know, fairly complicated social science and economics ideas. Um, and, and good at exploring, you know, this, this explanation for, you know, where, the Trump phenomenon kind of came from. And, you know, he argues that communities that are rich in social capital, whether they are uh, affluent or not, um, they can be affluent like uh, Montgomery County in Maryland, um, or they can be lower income, uh, uh, such as in the, as in Iowa or the Dakotas. Um, but if they're rich in social capital, uh, they tended not to support Trump at very high levels. Um, and so his argument is that when you don't have, when you're not sort of embedded in communities that offer support, um, you then turn to uh, what's on offer from opportunistic uh, politicians. I'm not sure that Tim would put it quite like that, but that would, that would sort of be my interpretation of what he finds. But it's a very, very good book. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. I think there's a lot there. And I'm, you know, hopefully we'll get Tim on here sometime to, to talk through it a little bit more too. But um, one, one of the things that you said, uh, was phase two of the, the social capital project was sort of proposing some of these different ways that you could use policy levers to influence social capital. And I'll admit, I, you know, whenever I see the reports come out, I read them, I think they're really valuable. I'd like to see those reforms adopted. Um, but at the same time, I, I'll have to admit, I'm a little skeptical that uh, even any policy lever could really budge some of these things that much in the sense that, you know, you can't write a law telling someone to be a better spouse or, or, you know, I, I, I don't, you couldn't really feasibly write a law that says, you know, people must volunteer, 
you know, in their local community defined by like census tracts or, you know, there's so many of the things that go into social capital seem to me to be a bit beyond the reach of public policy. So can you comment on that? Do you think I'm, I'm maybe overly pessimistic there? Or uh, what do you think the limits of social capital are? There. Yeah, you know, I, I think policies can only sort of have impacts at the margins. Um, <clears throat> as you say, you know, so much of this is, is stuff you can't legislate. Um, and in particular, uh, you know, so many of, of the problems that we have around fraying social life are the result of choices that we've made um, that I alluded to earlier. You know, we've, we, uh, could have chosen, for instance, to remain at the living standards that we had in uh, in the 1960s, for instance, um, and to continue to have uh, families supported by one breadwinner, you know, typically was was a guy, um, and and have another uh, another parent at home. Typically, that was the mom. Um, in such a world, you know, there there were more opportunities. Uh, for community building, because rather than working 80 hours a week, families were working 40 hours a week, and then uh, and investing you know the rest of the time in in social capital. Uh, and um, you know, as as more and more women joined the workforce, we could have as a society um, the the men could have said like, "Wow, this is great! Now I only have to work 20 hours, and I can invest 20 hours in my community and my family." Um, but that didn't happen. Um, instead, we we now you know have have more two worker families, which is fine. Um, you know, I, I have a daughter. I want her to have all, all the opportunities in the world. But we have to recognize that these were choices that we made along the way, um, and and uh, so part of what we were trying to do, I think, in the social capital project was just draw attention to this fact that you know that that in some ways, like we've just got to face up to. Uh, the choices that we've made. And if we think we chose badly um, or that we went too far in one direction, then let's let's take a look at ourselves and, um, and, and think about uh, making some more changes. The limitations of policy, I think you can see most clearly uh, when you think about um, the increase in single parenthood, which of course has been a very big policy issue. Um, and uh, Policymakers have spent a lot of time trying to trying to reverse that trend, but pretty much without much success. Um, George Bush, when he was president, the second George Bush, uh, funded um, marriage promotion and fatherhood programs uh, that were rigorously evaluated and didn't actually move the needle on on increasing marriage. Um, and and we just don't know of any other ways that have that have been that effective. Uh, it's possible that some of the safety net reforms that we pursued in the 90s uh, stopped some some worsening trends um, from continuing to worsen. Um, things like teen pregnancy, uh, out of wedlock births, um, but even there, you know, the, the evidence is not super strong. Um, so that's an example of, of a social capital breakdown that has long been recognized as an issue and that policymakers have wanted uh, to reverse. But you know, we don't really know how the limited things that we've tried haven't really worked. So that's that's all kind of in support of 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 your gut uh, sort of view on that. I think Ben. Yeah. Well, I was hoping that you could get, provide me with some more uh, evidence for optimism, but 
I guess it's better we have a clearer picture of, of what's happening. Um, and, you know, so I just, I, I think about some of these things, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about that you kind of hit on a little bit here was how, you know, we've definitely shifted what our workforce looks like. We've shifted a lot of what our family dynamics look like, uh, you know, in the, since the 1960s or so. Um, in my reading, you know, some of the, I guess you might call it like a new nationalism or, um, you know, how, however you want to kind of refer to that is I, I read some of it at least as kind of a backlash to some of those trends. Um, and I think you're kind of hitting on maybe one of the main dis- points of disagreement between, um, you know, how maybe how you see things or how some of the, um, you know, I would call them like the reformicons, uh, you know, might have seen things uh, in the in the past uh, decade and sort of how this new nationalist approach is coming. My reading of it is they're witnessing some of these breakdowns in social capital, I think. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think maybe you're sort of saying that that's a result of the choices that we've made as a society and we've kind of moved away from these things. And they're saying, uh, you know, we can we can we can indeed use policy levers to kind of roll backwards on some of these things. Um, Do you think that that's a fair way to describe this uh, rift or maybe you can I'll broaden it out a bit and say, you know, maybe you can highlight some ways in which you see some of the fault lines changing uh, sort of within the broad center-right uh, Wonka sphere. So I guess to start with the reformicons, I, I think, you know, there was a lot of overlap between some of the folks who were identified, I think, as reform conservatives and some of the folks who are now uh, viewed as being national conservatives, for instance, or, or pro-natalists, which those two groups are different but overlapping as well. Um, the reformicons, I think, were were less united in retrospect um, than maybe was apparent at the time. I think it was a group of of uh, conservatives who felt like uh, conservatism needed to be updated um, so that it was more attentive to uh, the middle class and the working class um, and the poor. Um, but maybe beyond that general sense, you know, there were a lot of disagreements uh, underneath, um, partly in terms of, you know, how the economy was serving uh, the middle class and and, uh, and working class and poor. Um, you know, there were there were topics that uh, that I think reformicons steered pretty far away from because they recognized there were diversity of views on things like immigration, for instance. Um, so in some ways, it was it was a fragile coalition. I think um, the the members of that coalition that have really become ascendant, as you say, are, are kind of now uh, identified as as being national conservatives. Um, and yeah, I think I think what unites them with the the sort of pro natalist social conservatives is this sense that the economy has failed a bunch of people. Um, partly because there are a lot of social trends that they don't like, um, not exclusively social. I'm certainly here, Orrin Cast, you know, talk a lot about economics and um, how elites have pursued misguided policies like trade. And, um, you know, I, I think that's totally off base, but I mean, but, but he is making an argument about, about economics. Um, but they're, they're misattributing most of what they're frustrated with uh, as being the fault of, 
of bad economic policy when, as you say, you know, I, I would sort of argue that uh, that most of it involves trade-offs that we've that we've made, um, uh, or just trends that don't have anything to do with with economics, or, or that, that that don't have that aren't primarily rooted in economics. Things like the depths of despair uh, epidemic, for instance, which um, you know has really become a thing um, during the period where where men's pay has finally started rising again. So, you know, the the period where men were doing poorly were the 1970s and 1980s, um, to some extent, the early 1990s. The uh, but but men's pay rose a lot uh, later in the 90s and has has risen almost as fast as women's pay uh, since then. And that's the period when you see the deaths of despair crisis, which which to me, you know, is much more readily interpretable as 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 a crisis of opioids, um, you know, just this this much more addictive drug um, that some people are taking, whereas in the past they would have taken drugs that weren't so addictive. Um, but to the national conservatives, this is a problem of our economic system, um, and uh, and and so we, you know, need to bring back manufacturing. It's sort of it, it's it's a it's just a a, a very strange linkage of. Um, of cause and effect, I think, that doesn't line up with, with what the, the data says. I feel like we hear that a lot, bring back manufacturing. Even I try to remind people, you know, manufacturing output is, you know, as high now or higher maybe than it's ever been. It's just the employment is lower because we've had so much productivity growth yeah. and capital investment. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I hear that often. And I kind of think that's a little bit of a red herring, but I, I think that's helpful to kind of illuminate some of this stuff. Cause like I, you know, I sympathize in the sense that I read, you know, some of the stuff from, from these more national conservatives and I kind of view some of the same problems that they're hitting on. You know, I, I, I recognize them perhaps, you know, as problems. So I, I have a lot of, um, you know, I think there's something there. I just, then, you know, when they kind of start funneling into solutions that are more about economics and clamping down on free trade and some of the other things, I have a little more trouble in seeing how how that solution is supposed to be linked um, to the to the problem they're identifying. Uh, you know, some of these problems, I just I like I said, I just I don't I'm I'm hesitant to say that they're even really within the bounds of of what policy can really hit on, um, you know, in a in a tangible way. So I think you know, maybe, maybe not doing something is better than, uh, doing something that's going to be harmful. Uh, and so I don't know, that's kind of, that's kind of where, um, I come down on that question, even though, you know, granted that's not popular, you know, it's not really popular to say like, well, as a politician, you know, we can't really do that much. Hmm. Um, so I don't know, maybe we can figure out a way to make the, you know, let's, let's not do things that aren't going to solve the problem, uh, sound a little sexier or something. I don't know how that, I feel like that's kind of what uh, has been a challenge, um, with some of this stuff. Uh, and re a really big reason why, you know, at Archbridge we're focused on, you know, in the independent sector and some of these more local groups and, um, trying to diversify the economy and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, well, Gonzalo, I feel like I've shut you out here a little bit. So if you want to, uh, if you want to chime in or if you had a question, you know, feel free. Otherwise I've got, I've got plenty um, to uh, to ask Scott about, uh, even even digging in a little deeper on some of the things that we've discussed already. Yeah, no, but uh, just maybe to focus a little bit more on the social capital question, or or just um, on why it hasn't 
maybe why it hasn't been slowing down or what are some of the issues there. Remember, we discussed in the past or heard you, Scott, mention a lot of times in terms of that a problem is that maybe now we have <laughs> that we're too affluent or that we have too many resources um, in order to um, and th so that we can sort of do some things ourselves and we're not dependent so much on the community or the neighbors to babysit or things like that. So, uh, so some of these issues, I think, are 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 what are, are what you call uh, f um, uh, first world problems. So I don't know if you if you want to elaborate on on some of that. What do you mean by some of these issues being first world problems, and how does that affect social capital or any other areas? Yeah, right. So I, I think I've, I've said that before, um, and I may or may not be writing a book uh, with that title. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. That's a good term. It could be a good book title. I'm not <laughs> going to elaborate on that. <laughs> you can you can use it, of course, like pejoratively and be like, oh, you know, what are what are what are we rich Americans complaining about? You know, our lives are are are, you know, better than. 99% of uh, humanity has ever experienced, which, which is true. Um, I, I like to use the phrase um, more as a way of getting at, at the fact that, you know, affluent nations do have uh, distinctive problems um, that are related to their affluence. And, and I think a lot of the decline in social capital falls into that category. Um, as you said, Gonzalo, you know, when 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 we're richer, uh, we don't have to rely on our neighbors to uh, help us raise a barn. You know, um, uh, we if we are doing home repairs or something like we contract out with people to, to do that, we rely on paid child care instead of, you know, tapping uh, a neighbor or needing to live near our parents um, so that they can provide child care. Um, you know, there are all kinds of ways that we can mitigate against various risks um, rather than having to uh, be nice to our neighbors or, or attend church every Sunday so that, you know, the church can help us in, in downtimes. We have uh, commercial insurance and, um, you know, we have credit cards and uh, uh, there are all sorts of ways that, uh, that, that, that we can mitigate against financial risk and other, other kinds of risk. Um, you know, where, where we have the luxury of, uh, of navel gazing, you know, in a way that, uh, that humanity for thousands of years, you know, never had that luxury. It was about kind of figuring out what your next meal was going to be and where you were going to get it. Um, now we have a lot of time to like, think about our identities and, uh, you know, who our true selves are and how we can actualize that, um, uh, we can focus on, you know, sort of the whole menu of options out there uh, that, that can increase our pleasure um, uh, rather than being expected to get married very young and to have five or six kids. Um, uh, so I, I think these are all very distinctive problems of affluent countries that no longer have to worry about um, basic necessities. And... Um, and they're real problems. I mean, you know, the, the fact that we have so many families experience a time crunch, you know, where they have two workers and they feel like they're not spending enough time with their kids and um, juggling too many things like those are real problems. Um, but they are problems that we've created for ourselves um, because uh, we we 
so many of us choose to send two workers into into the workplace now. Um, they also create problems, of course, for people who would prefer uh, not to uh, send two workers into the workplace, but um, but in order to have um, you know a nicer, a bigger home, two cars, or whatever, uh, as the price of some of those things gets bid up, um, some people who you know don't have the opportunity to uh, to to have that more traditional lifestyle as well. These are all unique problems of of rich countries, and so yeah, talking about them in terms of first world problems is a uh, an interesting way to think about it, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating way to look at it. You're just trying to get a free copy of the book, Gonzalo, I feel like. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm doing my best. He's aiming for it. <laughs> I'm aiming for it. I would even add maybe one more on there. I've been, you know, kind of following on this thing um, that you certain people have dubbed like the meaning crisis. Um, and uh, I definitely, I'm growing more convinced that it's a real thing. Um, and that, you know, we have a colleague uh, who works uh, on psychology and he's talked a lot about meaning uh, and sort of how meaning sort of affects our economic lives as well. And, and I think there's really something there. But, you know, I mean, one data point that we can point to is, is you know, we're a very affluent country um, and, you know, we have much higher rates of things like depression or suicide than a lot of really poor countries, you know, like they're they're not doing nearly as well in terms of their, their affluence. And yet some of those problems they've been able to sidestep. Uh, and so it, I don't know, I feel like it kind of in a, in a perverse kind of way, if some of these policies, um, you know, get passed that limit our economic growth and our dynamism, and our innovation and push our living standards down, uh, could we see like a rise in social capital and some of the things that more tangibly, uh, you know, people self-report as being more meaningful. I mean, I wouldn't want to do that intentionally, but I, I, I'm curious to, I don't know how that would ac actually work out in practice. Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment. I, I mean, I suspect that if if it did, you know, it would probably be something that, that people uh, would would think was a worse trade than what we've got now, because, you know, in fact, what we've chosen is, uh, is, is to be richer and, um, and forego these, these things about our social life. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think it would be better to have more honest policy debates, um, you know, that, that force people to kind of confront like, well, you know, if you, you would be able to have, uh, uh, more kids if, you were willing to accept, you know, a 1970 living standard, which, you know, if you live in a major metro area means you're gonna have to move like further out from the city, um, or, or have a smaller home. Um, uh, but, but, you know, let, let's make the trade-offs explicit. Um, if we want to, uh, pursue master's degrees, you know, to the extent that, that we do these days, um, that's going to restrict, uh, you know, the, the years during which, uh, women can, can bear kids. And so, um, you know, that's a, that's a trade-off for sure. Um, uh, if we wanted to get rid of, uh, the, the sort of time crunch that so many families face, um, you know, then somebody should start working part-time, um, and accept that income will be lower. Um, it may not be lower, 
than it was in 1970 or in 1980, um, uh, but it will be lower than it otherwise would be. And you know, is that a trade-off uh, that that we're willing to accept? Um, it's just much easier, I think, which you know, to do what the national conservatives are doing, and to point to like all the evil uh, people responsible for all of our woes, whether it's Wall Street or uh, free traders. Um, uh, or if you're if you're sort of more in a Trumpier populist camp, you know it's immigrants. Um, it, it, people are looking for for boogeymen um, when really like we've just got to recognize the choices we've all made. And in that sense, um, Scott, because I haven't really delved specifically into all of the reports from the Social Capital Project, but in it, obviously, you have all the measurements of how uh, what social capital means or how you're measuring it and um i would think that yeah if we have more maybe more social capital or, or in, and more meaning like you say ben that we wouldn't see higher rates of depression or or issues that we've seen here but have you have you discussed in in the project uh, or just in general what are your thoughts of that maybe that that, that there are new ways that, so there there are new ways to create social capital so we can't sort of uh, con uh speak about the same or expect that it will be the same uh than that newer ways now that communities are formed more online or around special interests or around special activities that people get together but they're not like geographically that close to each other i mean i imagine they'll need to be like let's say count like adjacent counties or something but it's not specifically on the ge geography, and I just say it as a as a as a silly example. Maybe I'll, I'll use my son. That obviously he's very much into Minecraft or some of his on online games, in which you play online with friends, and he has his close friends because we don't just let him to play with it with anyone. But and so obviously he those friends are came from like uh, people that we know. But in general, maybe some of the, some people are now going to these like online forums, either for games or for other interests, and find peers there. And at the beginning, we can't sort of trust that those people are going to be as close as like a neighbor or as a family member at first, and maybe they're farther away. But in time, the the, the, the those relationship also gives you give you meaning, or the relationship also give you some sort of social capital that can serve you even for 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 a job. And say they can rely on them as for introduction further down the line. I don't know, but has been a discussion of like about sort of newer ways for social capital nowadays. Or yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, you know whether technology has been you know a, a net good or net bad for um, for social capital. Um, and I think you know it's a, it's an empirical question. There hasn't been a lot of great research done yet on it. I don't think. Um, but it, it all sort of comes down to, you know, why are relationships valuable or, or not valuable? Um, if if people are using, you know, email, text messaging, social media, uh, interactive video games, um, if if their usage of those are are building or strengthening relationships um, because you know there's real sort of exchange of, uh, of friendship and, um, uh, support and, you know, intimacy and, um, vulnerability and all the things that make relationships valuable, um, then, then those are going to be more valuable for social capital. Um, 
if there are things that um, that all they do is is sort of put people in connection with people in relationships where there's not that kind of exchange and where it's more like the worst of Twitter, say, um, you know, where it's putting you in touch with people who you don't really know and it's really easy to beat up on them. Um, and there's not going to be really any consequences for it if you do, um, then that's going to, to, to sort of be negatively valued social capital, I think. Um, so a lot comes down to, you know, how we use these, these new media, um, and, and ultimately, you know, they'll, they'll be valuable or not valuable depending on, on what we put into them. Um, I, I think there's probably, uh, I think something like Facebook, uh, you know, would, would maybe more clearly fall on the positive side if you think of like, oh, I can now, you know, talk to my old high school classmates who live live around the country um, or find, you know, see their baby pictures and things like that. That's pretty benign. I mean, there, there's certainly like fights on Facebook as well and there's fake news and all of that. But um, that seems more uh, beneficial from the perspective of social capital than, uh, than something like Twitter. <laughs> um, although, you know, a lot of people, uh, get a ton of value, uh, from Twitter by, uh, you know, learning, learning things from people that they otherwise wouldn't learn, um, making friends that they've not actually ever met in person, but, uh, but have like a real kind of give and take and, uh, with them. So, um, yeah, I, I think it, I think it kind of has to end up being, case by case. It's sort of a knee-jerk reaction that the tech has been bad for social capital, I think, is, um, you know, is too too reactionary, I think. Yeah, and this, these technologies are all still fairly new. Um, so I think, I, I suppose we'll learn more as we go, and there's probably going to be a little trial and error um, in, in all this stuff. Um, well, I... We've gone for a little over an hour now, um, so I do kind of want to wrap it up a little bit. I had a few rapid-fire questions if you are up for it, Scott. I mean, if I'm oversimplifying, feel free to take as much time as you'd like uh, to answer them, but there's a, uh, just a couple that I wanted to make sure I ask before we uh, sign off here. So first one, sure. what do you think has been the most effective anti-poverty or generally social mo upward social mobility policy uh of the past 20 years or maybe 30 years because i think you're in when you're discussing some of these policies that you go back a lot to the 1994 reform yeah there's a welfare so i don't know if that's one that you think which is going a little bit further back than 20 yeah i think the 1990s were a really important period um both for poverty and and mobility um, Ryan Streeter, my colleague at AEI, has a really nice article for National Affairs about this. Um, there was just a lot of, for whatever reason, there was a lot of policy experimentation uh, during that decade. Um, so on the anti-poverty front, you know, we had welfare reform, but we also had um, the expansion of the earned income tax credit, the creation of the child tax credit, um, uh, and a bunch of other reforms that both encouraged people to work and made life better for people who were working, but but who you know were, were low earners, and that combination has ended up, I think, being really good for, for poverty, um, and hopefully good for upward mobility too. Um, you know, we're only twenty five years out, so it's still a little bit. You know, we're kind of just getting data of, I think, some of the kids who are now um, full grown adults from that. Um, 
there were other policy experiments like uh, the charter school revolution, you know, sort of began in the 90s, um, which had a really interesting and important federal role. Um, the federal government kind of uh, provided startup funds for states um, who uh, who then had to agree to, to put in some of their own money um, to allow for charter schools. And then the understanding was that over time, the federal dollars were going away and the states would, would be on the hook for it. Um, but that was really the, the, the policy measure that moved the needle on charter schools in places like Minnesota and, and, and other places later on. Um, that I think has been, you know, the most positive development in education policy, uh, certainly of the last 30 years or so. Um, so those, those would probably be the, the two that I would flag. All right, we'll take it. Um, the next one I wanted to ask, so uh, what is the worst anti-poverty or social policy lever that you see floated most often? Interesting. The worst that I see floated. Um, top three, maybe? Yeah, it could be <laughs> so top you three. You have to choose just one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do think a lot of the proposals that are aimed at reducing inequality, you know, would, would not... They're, they're not always posed as as being intended to reduce poverty or or to inc increase upward mobility. But I do think that something like a wealth tax, you know, would be very bad policy. Um, I think a fifteen dollar minimum wage, uh, you know, is 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 a pretty bad idea. It's you know, it's more than doubling the current minimum wage. There's nothing in in the research that's been done on the minimum wage that, that can really tell us anything about the impact of doubling uh, a minimum wage in a very, you know, over a very small number of years. Right. Particularly at the federal level. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The, the idea that, you know, you're going to have a $15 minimum wage in Alabama um, where the cost of living is, you know, way lower than in New York. Um, that just seems crazy. Um those those two would certainly be up there. Uh, trying to think of some other ones. I mean, Vice President Harris's proposal on the campaign trail in in, in twenty sixteen of uh, I think giving two thousand dollars per child per month <laughs> um, in perpetuity. I think was was the proposal. Um, you know, was like. All, all of these proposals, the theme is like, you, you know, maybe the, the kernel of an okay idea, you know, that is just taken comically too far. Um, you know, she, she literally was proposing something that would have given, you know, every family like $25,000 a year or something like that, um, which would just have dramatic consequences, put aside even the, the cost of it and how we'd pay for it. Um, yeah, those are, those are, those are a few ideas I would say. Okay. That sounds good. One of the things that um, that sort of that sort of also worries me a little bit, and that I've heard you mention in the past, that there are that that in some of the conversation to how to increase uh, how to increase uh, upper mobility, there are issues that are not discussed and that could be key, like economic growth or like business dynamism. In the sense that when we talk about so welfare plans or how to adjust some of these 
poverty relief system. That's basically what it, what they're doing is the function is to sort of serve as a as a trampoline or or help people when they're in need. But that's sort of to fix poverty. But they're not addressing some of the, the sort of what what could be and maybe the one that you mentioned that what you mentioned a few minutes ago about incentivizing work uh, is one of the. Uh, good parts of some of these reforms, but just work in in and of itself, not seen as the main uh, the main vehicle to climb the income ladder, is that what I what I think is is, is key in this debate, and we we don't see that uh, that often. And what I've seen now in some of the discussions, and maybe the Kamala Harris proposal is sort of part of it, more of a focus on how we can provide more economic security and UBIs or other plans. And thinking that we need a baseline to, to, to start growing in terms of uh, income or to get better jobs or all that, but not the jobs itself, not that aspect of job creation, the dynamism that we require. And I think we've discussed in the past how some of the stagnation maybe that we see in the numbers of mobilities coincides with the with the decline in business dynamism as well. And um, and there's a there's a few I think papers or places where they try to correlate and analyze the lack of business dynamism at a county level and how has that happened. I mean, how does that correlate with with income mobility? I think we definitely need more of that, and we will certainly try to do that with Orchbridge, but. Uh, but that's the idea. If we don't have engines of job creation and more opportunities in counties at country levels, if we're comparing internationally even, uh, I think we're missing a big part of that conversation. And we think that jobs are just, just going to come uh, uh, from from somewhere, but we're not focusing that as the main driver of this conversation, which I think we should. Or as it relates, how is that relates, generates more uh, more economic growth, which one is... I mentioned, I heard you mention that's one of the best you know, vehicles as well for for upper mobility. If there is more uh, robust economic growth, so maybe talking a little bit about that, how that's missing in this conversation as well. It's more focused on the bottom part of the poverty discussion. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think economic growth has been the primary reason why poverty has gone down um, over you know the last fifty years, um, and. Yeah, we give we give too short shrift often to um, just the importance of not getting in the way of uh, of the job creation machine that is American capitalism. Um, I, I I like to cite a statistic that ends up being a little bit hard to explain, but essentially the Congressional Research Service, which is sort of a, a think tank for Congress that that does studies just for members of Congress, they put out a report on income trends. Uh, or, or poverty trends um, for single mothers, uh, I think in 2013 or something. Um, and they found that if you looked at the poverty rate for single mothers uh, in 2013, and you didn't count any uh, any safety net benefits at all, except for unemployment, um, and you looked at that poverty rate, and you compared it to the poverty rate before welfare reform, so in the early 1990s. Uh, and but in the early 1990s, one you include the entire uh, cash safety net um, that existed at that time. Poverty was lower in 2013, um, even though you're not counting all of the expanded safety net that, that we did in between. Um, if you hadn't had any of that, just by make, just by encouraging more people to work. Um, you you would have seen a decline in poverty, 
even on top of the earned income tax credit, on top of you know the expanded SNAP benefits uh, that we also did, on top of more generous disability benefits, all of that. So that really speaks to the importance of growth, and um, uh, yeah, and th and that's that's sort of in some ways the bread and butter of of Republican policymaking, um, but it's too often not done in in a thoughtful way. I think. Um, you know, thinking more about what specific kinds of deregulation, you know, would encourage economic growth, um, what specific ways of incentivizing innovation um, would, would expand economic growth. That's something that I think conservatives need to need to think harder about and would be extraordinarily valuable, both for upward mobility um, and for poverty reduction. Definitely something that we'll be thinking harder about and we'll uh, be following what you do uh, on that as well. Uh, I think that's probably a good place uh, to end it. So I really appreciate you taking the time and talking with us about poverty and mobility and some of the complex dynamics that are going on here. And hopefully we'll uh, get to do this again sometime uh, in the near future. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh, it was a pleasure to chat with you guys. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you very much, Scott.